3: and definitely check out those shows as well. Katherine Morgan Schaffler is the author of The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. She is a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker, and former on-site therapist at Google. She earned degrees and trained at UC Berkeley and Columbia University with post-graduation certification from the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy in New York City. As you'll hear in our episode, I basically tried to get her to be a therapist for me, but she is not accepting new patients, so we'll have to be friends. Enjoy. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you.
3: Catherine, I have to tell you, I was like almost in tears reading the introduction to this book. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, never, I might cry now. I just feel like you have confirmed pieces of myself that like I hadn't been able to articulate this well. And I've always jokingly referred to myself. I mean, I, I don't even joke about it. I mean, like I am a perfectionist, but like you point out in the book, I've had some sort of shame around that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry, I'm a perfectionist, whatever. But like, to see it all spelled out and to like, not only have it sort of condoned, but celebrated and to have a whole roadmap to like dealing with this one piece of my complicated personality. So well, oh my gosh. Anyway, thank
2: you. It's just, oh, that's so generous (laughs) of you to say so. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think of perfectionism as a power and a power, any power has A dichotomous aspect to it, so it can be constructive or destructive, and we're so over-indexed on the destructive part of perfectionism, and we talk about it in our culture in such a bizarre way. From my perspective, like it's this evil force that we need to eradicate from ourselves, and particularly women are given this message. It's such a gendered construct, and there, uh, you know, I appreciate using the word shame because there is a lot of shame, especially for ambitious women, which you might know something about. (laughs) I've been seeing you everywhere lately, by the way, you have the bookstore. I'm reading my, what if you're with my mom when it comes out. So I'm excited. We've never actually read a book together, but I'm starting to get like immersed in, in the publishing world so much with my book coming out. And so I think that would be really fun. But anyway, I digress. So yeah, I think ambitious women feel this sense of their of a need to hide or at least make palatable in some way, how much drive they have, how much they want. Being, you know, saying I want something or I want more as a woman, I think immediately feels like there's a subtext of a lack of gratitude or appreciation or even possibly presence. There's so much to the construct of perfectionist perfectionism that we just get totally wrong, totally wrong.
3: In the book, you give a little quiz right up front of like which type of perfectionist you are. I was a classic, but I feel like it was only by one, No, Mm -hmm. you know, like (laughs) I was like very, pretty evenly spread out among everything. Tell me about your study of perfectionism, all about these different types, what we should like take away from, like, what do perfectionists... There are all these ways you try to change the thinking, right? Which I love, like, don't think about it like this way. Think about it this way. You know, this like cognitive behavioral type changes, but
2: I don't know. Tell me more about that. Well, I'm a perfectionist myself too, which shocked me to discover. And I've always been drawn to the energy of the perfectionist. And I looked into this whole topic because I talk about it a little bit in the book like just when my life was all coming together in this like perfectly constructed way and my professional life was skyrocketing and I had just been married one year, all this stuff happened that just made me lose control of my life. I got really sick. I lost a pregnancy. I had to go into chemotherapy without being able to freeze my eggs. And I just felt like everything got taken away and I never realized how much I tried to control everything until I had that experience. And it was so surprising to me. And I was like, wait a minute. And so I tried to my best to get an aerial perspective of like, what is perfectionism? How can I be a perfectionist if I never know where my phone is? Like Mm -hmm. what's going on? And then I realized and noticed all these patterns in my work and, and five personality patterns emerged. and I want to just lay the groundwork for the definition of perfectionism that I'm using because there is no clinical definition of perfectionist. It's sort of the wild wild West in in the clinical and research landscape because we all agree in the research world that we're in the infancy of understanding this concept. And so I was so frustrated because I didn't have the language to anchor what I was seeing and noticing in myself and the people I worked with. So that's what I did with this book is I tried to offer some language to begin to anchor some of what I'm seeing. So the five types are the classic, right? Which this type of perfectionist each has their pros and cons, highly reliable, adds structure to any situation, can sort of always figure it out. They do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it in the way they said they would do it. But on the con side... Sometimes they can be so immersed in the sort of busyness of their structure and plan that they can lose sight of why they're doing the things that they're doing. And sometimes interpersonally, they can be taken for granted because people just expect them to to always do it, whatever that is. And so they don't necessarily... their, Their style of working or connecting may not necessarily engender a sense of collaboration or things that create connection, right? Then there's the intense perfectionist. And this is somebody who's like, you want something done, give it to an intense perfectionist. There's there's razor sharp focus on achieving the outcome. And it's great. At the same time, sometimes that focus on the outcome can be so myopic that you get to the outcome in this really destructive way and you hurt yourself and people around you to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And at the end, it's kind of like, sure, you got what you wanted, but nobody's happy. Everybody's miserable. You know, it's that kind of thing. Then there's the procrastinator perfectionist. And this perfectionist wants the conditions to be perfect before they start. These Hmm. people are so good at preparing. They're so good at understanding, you know, a 360 angle on everything and they are not impulsive, right? So these are sort of steady thinkers Yet they have so much anxiety around the beginning of something and they just can't execute when their perfectionism isn't being managed. Mm. And on the counterpart to that, there's the messy perfectionists. And these perfectionists are like, start happy. They love starting a million things, cast a hugely wide net, are superstar idea generators. But when they meet the tedium of the middle of the process, like... They're like, oh, I'm going to start a business about this, and it's going to be named that, and this is this is what how my color palette on my Instagram page is going to be. And then it's like, what do you mean I have to file a PLLC? Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And when they encounter the not perfect, not romanticized parts of a process, they just kind of like back away. So, so if you're not managing that type of perfectionism, you're saying yes to everything and committing to nothing and it all it's like playing jenga like mm. it's built to fall and it's really disheartening when it falls because you because i think you can ex- internalize those messages like nobody takes me seriously and i just can't get my stuff together and all of that And none of that is true. It's just that you need boundaries around your perfectionism. And then the last one is Parisian perfectionists. And this kind of perfectionism is really interesting because it plays out interpersonally. So this is when you want to be perfectly liked and you also want to perfectly like other people, right? So you want an ideal connection and you want that connection maybe at work or with your kids, you want to be the perfect mom, whatever perfect means to you. So that's what's really interesting about perfectionism is it's highly individualized. When I say perfect, I don't mean sort of the culturally sanctioned idea of perfect. It's really nuanced and that's where it can get tricky. It means like, well, it's of course it's okay to get frustrated if you're a mom, but the time you get frustrated and the reason you get frustrated and how long you get frustrated and the intensity of your frustration, is there's all a map for that in your head. Like you can't be disproportionately frustrated for, you know, some little thing that your kid did, for example. And that's when we get into the the trickiness of really being to able to identify what's happening, which is that you have a perfect image of what being a mom is. And it's not someone who never gets mad, but it's really specific. And you may or may not be aware of that. Hmm. And when you deviate from that, same with employees, same with partnerships, same with all those things. Whenever you deviate from this image that you have, if you're not managing your perfectionism, you respond to that deviation with punishment. And if, if people don't get anything else from this book... I want them to hear that punishment is dumb. It's not a strategy. It doesn't work, and not only doesn't it work, it makes everything worse. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like we punish ourselves so much and what punishment is very dis- different than discipline? And punishment is different. And I spell this out in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. Punishment's different than taking personal accountability or rehabilitation or allowing natural consequences to unfold. All punishment is, is laying pain on top of whatever's there. It's a lazy thing to do. It's what most people do when they don't know what else to do because they want to feel responsible or be accountable. And so you're kind of, the grand plan is to be really hard on yourself in order to like whip yourself into shape. And you actually just lodge yourself in shame and stuckness when you do that. Very interesting.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
3: slash moms don't have time. So let's say someone's listening and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're like, this is me. Although I have to say after you ran through the types, I'm not even sure which one I am because there are bits and pieces of me in every single category. But anyway, what what do we do with this? And I know you outlined a lot of this in the book and ways to sort of live with this better and use it to our advantage and all that. But like, okay, I'm a listener and I'm a perfectionist all of a sudden. Obviously, I'm running out and buying your book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control.
2: But then what? Right. Well, I think you're hearing a little bit of you sprinkled in all these personality profiles because perfectionism is really context-dependent and fluid. So like, I think we all had this experience when we just went home for the holidays. You're a different person if you go home to your family. I I don't know about anyone else, but I tend to regress into like my 14-year-old self and I get... Into really like classic perfectionist-y kind of ways, because there's something soothing about that to me. And some people can be a messy perfectionist at dating. Like they love going on the first, second, third date. Oh my gosh, it's so great. And then you're on the fourth date, and you know, the person says something or does something that really puts you off, and you feel like, oh, the whole thing is off. You know, you call it all off. And so this shows up in a lot of different contexts. And I would say the number one thing that you can use as a tool to kind of help you cultivate the power of your perfectionism is self-compassion. And I dedicated a whole chapter to self-compassion because it's one of those words that we just kind of toss around and nobody really knows what it means and or what it looks like. And we think of it in this reductive way, like self-compassion is being super nice to yourself, like really, really sweet. And that's not what self-compassion is. Self-compassion is a three-step resiliency building skill. And it's a skill that you need if you want to progress and grow. Like you can't really move if you don't engage in self-compassion. The best you can hope for is stagnation. So maybe I could just go through those three steps and kind of spell those out. This is from Dr. Krista Neff's framework of self-compassion and the first step is mindfulness. So again, another word like, what does that even mean? But she extracts her definition of mindfulness from Buddhist thinking and she means, let's say you experience disappointment The goal is not to say like, how can I not feel disappointed anymore? A better question is, what else do I also feel? So if you learn to turn your head just one degree to the right and see that you might also feel relieved that at least now you know whatever it is that you just found out that made you feel disappointed. Or maybe you're curious about this other thing that you forgot about because you've been so immersed in, you know, whatever it is that's making you feel disappointed. Or maybe you feel... Sensual or excited or playful or tired or whatever, and just beginning to like see that there are lots of colors in your emotional landscape, and disappointment's not the only thing you're experiencing. I think that's why people feel so stuck in those moments is because we let one emotion just eclipse us like a tidal wave. So, mindfulness is one, common humanity is another, and that's just. You know, there's millions, billions of people who have had your exact problem. And it doesn't feel that way when we are having the problem, particularly around problems that are taboo for our culture, like sexual abuse, for example. It feels like this is such an uncommon thing. No one can ever relate to me. Nobody could understand this. And I describe common humanity as like, imagine someone picked you up like one of those claw grabber machines at an arcade and plunked you down in a room full of 50 people who are telling their story of having the exact same problem that you have. And you don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. You just have to sit there and listen. And immediately that's curative and nothing's even happening except that you're realizing like, oh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we tell people, you're not alone all the time and people tell us. And I think we all register that intellectually, but I don't know, for me, when I'm in those moments, unless I'm hearing someone's story, which is I think why storytelling and books are so powerful, you just don't emotionally register it, you know? And so that's common humanity. And then the third component of self-compassion is kindness, and kindness looks like recognizing that you're in pain and that's hard. And so sometimes we we kind of dance around like, oh, I feel disappointed or this sucks or I'm having a really hard morning. And we we're using all these euphemisms in some ways to detract from acknowledging like, I am hurting. This is painful. This person, friendship, relationship, like really hurt me. And if you can acknowledge that you're in pain and then just do one kind thing for yourself, like not problem solving, you're not trying to fix anything. You're just saying like, oh, are you cold? Can I get you a sweater? Do you need some tea? You want to sit down? You want to just like watch a show and relax for a minute because this is a lot. You know, so that's one tool that I present in the book of like the tool of self-compassion. It's much more sophisticated than i think it's advertised in our culture and i'm really excited about people beginning to understand what that means and what it looks like because you can access it at any time and even if you just do one of those things like that's good <laughs> you know what i mean so self compassion is kind of the salve to punishment it's like the opposite of punishment is self compassion okay Wow, good,
3: amazing resources. When you talked about the hard time in your life, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it affected your need for control or just how you got through it emotionally?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that's really oddly sad about that time is that, and this is what made me realize like, wow, I'm really operating from a mindset of control instead of a mindset of power is that I was really calm during that time. And like it was peaceful to me because I was like, oh, the bad thing that I was always sure was going to happen is happening now. The shoe has dropped and now nothing else bad can happen, which doesn't logically make any sense. But it made me realize how much I was moving through my daily life just kind of trying to stave off some like impending disaster and just trying to control all the stuff that I had so that I would never lose it. Or on the converse, trying to control all the stuff that I felt close to getting so that I could finally have it. And I was just sort of operating for the outcome instead of living in my daily life. And when I got sick because I had this false emotionally charged logic of like, well, this is the bad thing. Nothing else bad could happen, which thankfully it didn't, but it could have. I was just in such a place of peace and power, which is like the subtitle of the book, Finding Peace and Power, because I think when you let go of trying to control, because I had no control, I couldn't do anything about losing my pregnancy. I couldn't do anything about you know, being one year into my marriage and feeling like, oh God, I don't know if we can have kids now. I don't know if, if my partner still wants to be married to me. I don't know if I'm worthy of of being his partner now because this isn't what he signed up for. And just all the themes that I delve into in, in the book, it was like a crash course in all of that. In addition to like the thousands and thousands of hours of clocked as a psychotherapist, listening to people be really honest about their lives. I mean, I'm always like why isn't everyone a psychotherapist? Because when you hear people all day long being really honest about what's going on and how they feel about it, it can't you can't not be changed by that, you know? And so being a therapist is also this like mini crash course in growth because that's what it means to really listen it's like listening is not taking in information and being able to dictate it back listening is being able to be changed by what the other person is saying and my clients have changed me in the most indelible beautiful ways and the curriculum of my life has also helped with that um as it has with everybody we all nothing's unique about my story really we all go through things, go through periods where we just like free fall. We just lose control. And the things that we thought we were so sure about are like gone or they're glitching or something weird is happening. And that's not going to be the last time that happens in my life. You know, that's the nature of life. I don't need it to be the last time that that happens, you know? So I really... Always thought I knew how to anchor myself in power, but I had that was the moment I had to prove it to myself. And after that moment, I was like, "Oh, great! Now I have to write a book." <laughs> so, it was obviously writing this book is like the best thing I've ever done, hardest thing I've ever done. But I wasn't expecting to. But it was like I had to contain all this, all that stuff that just came together. It you know, I hate to say like it was such a gift because I don't want to wrap a bow on it and I don't want other people to hear me and feel the expectation to wrap a bow on whatever hard thing they're going through. But that's that's the seed of the book is that, that moment in time for me. And what, what ended up happening with your husband? Well, we're still together. I actually, like one night I said to myself, like, I'm just going to give him an out. To this Mm -hmm. marriage. I was like, I'm not gonna do it when I'm sad. I'm gonna do it when we're both in a good place and we're happy and connected. And I'm just gonna tell him something to the extent of like, I love you. I want you to be happy. I know you want kids. I don't know what's gonna happen. I know you didn't sign up for this. Where one year in, like, it's okay, Mm -hmm. you know. And I did do that. And he just laughed at me. In the most wonderful way. And he was like, I didn't marry you so that we could have kids. I married you so that we could be together. There are lots of ways to bring kids into our lives. And if we can't figure out any of them, you know what he told me? I don't know if if he's going to be mad at me for saying this or not, but he was like, then we could just blow all our money on dumb shit and nobody can be (laughs) mad at us. (laughs) Nobody can be mad at us because we'll be so sad. So I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. Well, that's good. I'm glad he has a sense of humor. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my God. Yeah. I I needed, I needed some comic relief in that moment for sure. Oh my gosh. So great. So are you still seeing, and you're still seeing private clients and you're open? I'm not at the moment. I took time out of my practice to write, to write this book and... You know, now that I know how to write a book, I have another one that I want to write. Of course. A perfectionist work is never done.
3: Oh, I love (laughs) it. So I'm
2: excited for that. And, you know, I'm just letting this whole process take me to wherever it's going to take me. I love that. Well, that's like an anti
3: perfectionist thing, isn't it? Just like letting things go. I feel like that's been or not. Well,
2: I mean, I think it's the adaptive perfectionist. Okay. Adaptive Mm
3: perfectionist.
2: All right. Yeah.
3: Okay. Catherine, again, this book, I'm going to just like spend a lot more time with this book. I think I'm going to like keep it next to my bed. (laughs) I'm going to give a copy to my husband. I'm just going to be like, okay, understand me a little bit better now, if you will. So anyway, thank you. It was really great. And you're a great writer. And uh, I'm excited for the
2: next one. Thank you so much. And congratulations on Everything that you are doing, I can't wait to just see everything <laughs> unfold. I mean, we're like in the next month. There's, yeah, just like your first book on your imprints coming out, right? Yeah, the stores opening. Yeah, you're everywhere. You're everywhere. I'm, I'm sorry, it
3: must be annoying.
2: <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. That's what I. You're exactly the kind of person I talk about in the book. The person who's like not afraid to be out there and be doing what they want to do and, and taking real pleasure in their lives. I love seeing people out in the world living in that way. I, you know, it's a great example and model. Glad I can be of use. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And now that I know that we're so close, we'll have to get together or I'll, next event I have, or I don't know, something. for sure absolutely okay Okay, take care thank you thanks so much bye 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 thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books